Hello everyone. Today as we continue our series looking at the Holy Spirit, what the Bible teaches about the Holy Spirit, we get into the, the central question, and it's the middle of the week, so we're on pace, um, uh, about the Holy Spirit. What does he do? How is he active in our lives as Christians? That's the bulk of the testimony that we have to wrestle with in the New Testament. When it talks about the Spirit most of the time, uh, the, the Bible is teaching us what he does, how he's active, how he's involved in the lives of Christians. And so we're addressing the, the simple question that has multiple answers. What does the Spirit do in the life of the Christian? It's a very important question because we want to follow the guidance of Scripture to shape our expectations. And that means in this particular area, we have the greatest temptation and the greatest possibility for confusion because we have a tendency as human beings to interpret our experiences uh, in certain ways. And we use our experiences, what we feel, what we perceive with our own eyes and our own senses and in our experiences, and we define those experiences, interpret those experiences uh, based on certain criteria. And, and many times our default tendency is that we interpret our experiences by our experiences. And we begin to uh, explain how what was happening to us or in us in a particular situation simply based on our own limited perspective. And what we're trying to do, what, what the goal for every Christian is that we would read the Bible and allow the Bible's teaching to shape our understanding of our experience. And so we're in an area of thinking and of biblical teaching that is challenging for us because it affects very much our experiences. Uh, there's a subjective element to the things that we're going to talk about today that creates some difficulties. And the goal is always going to be to let the scriptures rule and let the scriptures govern. And so we're going to look at several passages of scripture and we're going to look at several distinct uh, things that the New Testament says that the Spirit does in the life of Christians. Yesterday we highlighted and focused on the initial indwelling of the Holy Spirit, that permanent taking up of residence in the believer. That happens the moment a sinful person begins to trust in Jesus, the Spirit of God comes in to live inside of you and he never leaves. He takes up permanent residence inside a believer at that moment. We need to start there because that's how he works with a Christian and we kind of need to uh, crystallize or maybe clarify something that we talked about yesterday when we talk about uh, the Spirit coming into our lives and indwelling us the moment we begin to trust in Jesus. We can start wrestling with those two distinct realities I trust in Jesus, I believe in him, I, I respond to the gospel with my faith and my repentance, and the Spirit comes in to live in me. And, and the way we talk about those two things, they're two distinct actions, something the Spirit does and something I do. And the question comes then, well, what is the relationship between those two events? And so the scriptures give us both of these realities, but which comes first? And, or are they simultaneous? And is there a, a logical cause and effect from one to the other? Does my response of faith then allow the Spirit to come into my life? Or does the Spirit come into my life and my response is then driven and motivated by that? That's what we want to look at first and foremost. So what does the Spirit do in the life of the Christian? Let's start at the very beginning. The Holy Spirit brings about the new birth. The Holy Spirit brings about the new birth. This is Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. John 3, 5, Jesus told Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And then down in verse 8, he describes the work of the Spirit in a somewhat mysterious way, but he compares it to something that we're familiar with. The wind, and in Greek, the, the word pneuma, pneuma, where we get pneumonia from, pneuma, is translated as both wind and spirit. And so it's the same word. So Jesus is using a clever play on words here to teach the truth. Do not marvel. Uh, so verse 8, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. And then he makes that observation that we would all agree with. 
and then he brings home the lesson. So it is, it's like that, with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And so Jesus suggests that the Spirit of God causes sinful people who are dead in trespasses and sins to be born again, to be born from above, to be born anew. And and in verse 8, the comparison with wind is to suggest that the Spirit is like the wind in that you may not be able to tell when the spirits first began to work in your life. You may, be, you may not be able to look back on a particular day or a particular moment when you awoke to new birth, to new life. I mean, think about it in the analogy with human birth, physical birth. Uh, I don't think any of us actually remember what it was like to be born. Uh, we don't remember how it happened. We know that it happened. We believe that we were born. And why do we believe that? Well, because our mama tells us the story about it, uh, because uh, we can look at a birth certificate that's a document that says you were born in this hospital on this day at this time, and you weighed this, and your, your length was this. So we have a document that attests that we were born, but the primary evidence that we know we were born is that we're alive right now. If you're alive right now, that means you were born. Uh, that's a kind of a basic fact. And so it is with the Spirit, and the new birth is the reality that the Spirit awakens us to new life, and we may not be able to tell when it happened, how it happened, what exactly the moment was. We may not be able to remember it, but we can see the effects of it. Like the wind, we know the wind is blowing, we can feel its effects, but we can't see it, and we can't tell where it came from or where it's going what its future is, uh, where its destiny lies, and so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit, meaning the Spirit comes into a person's life and then there's a new awareness and an awakening that happens, and the Spirit causes that. The Spirit is the one who causes the new birth. You are born of the Spirit or by the Spirit's power. You don't cause that. You don't cause yourself to be born physically and you don't cause yourself to be born spiritually. 1 John 5, 1 helps here to think about this. If we read it carefully, John suggests a relationship between our faith and the new birth. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And so with that statement, the way the grammar works out, John is probably making the point that everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. How do you know you've been born of God? You believe in Christ. And so... The relationship is a cause and effect. You, your birth, your new birth, causes your faith. Now, they, they happen simultaneously, essentially. When you respond to the gospel in faith and repentance, the, the Spirit is at work in you to give you new life and to empower that response of faith and obedience, of faith and repentance. And it's the Spirit who gets credit for that. It's the Spirit whose responsibility is to cause that and enable that process to happen. So that's the beginning, right? That's the beginning of the Spirit's work in a believer's life. He causes that faith. Uh, we'll talk uh, probably tomorrow about uh, how the Spirit, or perhaps on Friday, uh, how the Spirit works with the non-believing world. How does the Spirit work with sinful people who aren't yet believers before the new birth? And even with unbelievers in the world, does the Spirit have something to do there? And the scriptures tell us that he does. But we'll come to that probably on Friday. So what happens then? Well, when he causes the new birth, he takes up a permanent residence inside individual believers. That's what we talked about yesterday. We've looked at Romans 8 9 pretty extensively, but it would be helpful to see 1 Corinthians 6 19 in this regard. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God? So you're a temple individually, and Paul says in, in other places, First Corinthians 3, in the same letter even, that we together are the temple of God, that God dwells in us as a body, as a collective group of Christians, but he also dwells in us individually. And that's what the point is in 619, 1 Corinthians 619. You're a temple, which means, what is a temple? Well, it's a place where God lives. And so the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, lives in you, and that makes you a temple individually. And he never leaves. So this is not like the Jerusalem temple of old. This is not like Solomon's temple where God's glory eventually abandoned them. He left the temple. You can read about that in Ezekiel. Uh, Ezekiel's vision in chapter 1 show, tells the story, and also Ezekiel chapter 10 
that uh, Ezekiel sees this vision of God's glory riding away from the temple on a chariot, on a grand, magnificent chariot, and he, ne he never returns. There's a promise in the Old Testament, there are prophecies that he will return and dwell in the temple, but he never did that with the second temple, the rebuilt temple. Uh, that's one of the things you miss when you read Ezra, and the completion of the temple happens. God's glory doesn't reside in it the way it did when the tabernacle was constructed in the book of Exodus, or when the temple was constructed under Solomon uh, in 1 Kings uh, 8. You don't see the glory of God dwelling in that temple. Well, that's because the fulfillment of those promises is about God's glory dwelling in the temple that is the church and the temple of our individual bodies. That's the fulfillment of those prophecies and promises in the Old Testament, that we are the temple that was announced and that was looked forward to in Ezekiel's prophecy and other places. And so we are that temple. And so the Spirit of God lives in us. We are his home. We are his house. We are his temple. What else can we say? We can look at Ephesians 1, 13, and 14, which we looked at a few weeks ago in a devotional, uh, a couple months ago, I guess now. Uh, he seals believers. The Spirit seals believers with God's mark of ownership and protection. The sealing of the Holy Spirit. What's that about? Well, in, in the ancient world, he's using a metaphor. And so the idea is that you seal something, you put your, your personal stamp on it to, to show to the world. So it's the purpose of sealing is to show to other people who might look at an object or a thing or a place and, and know whose it is. And so the seal indicates ownership. It says, this is mine. But it also uh, indicates a commitment to protect. Not Because this is mine, I'm going to protect it. And so the seal warns those who might threaten to harm the uh, thing that's been sealed that the person who sealed it is going to act to protect it from harm. And so if you try to attack it or try to harm it, then you can expect that the person who sealed it, who's usually a king or some powerful figure, uh, is going to exact vengeance against you. And he is going to act to protect what is his. That's what the sealing of the Holy Spirit is all about. The mark of the Spirit upon us is something that can be seen by other people. That's the whole point. And so, what does the seal signify? It is a, in a metaphor that Paul uses there, Ephesians 1, and it comes up in another place as well. Uh, the citation is escaping me at the moment, but Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, the sealing is all about saying, the Spirit marks us in such a way that other people can see that we belong to Him, and they should understand that to mean that He will act to protect us. What is that? What do people see? They don't actually see any kind of visible mark on us, but they see that our life is different. They see the impact of the Spirit on us. They see the impact of the wind, that there's a wind blowing in our lives that's not blowing in theirs. And what they should recognize in that, and it usually requires some interpretation, is that God himself has purchased us in the death of Jesus, and the Spirit's presence in our life is evidence of that reality. And so we look for the Spirit's, the evidence of the Spirit's work in our lives as an indicator that we are owned by God, that He really has purchased us in the death of His Son. Uh, because the Spirit, that's just the thing, God doesn't leave us to ourselves. When He purchases us, He brings us home. He doesn't leave us on the counter at the grocery store. He doesn't forget about us when He checks out at the register. He brings us home and He changes us. He makes a difference in our lives. And if he's not making a difference in a person's life, then there is a question about whether he really owns that person. So that's what the sealing of the Spirit is all about. Uh, another thing we could say that he does, uh, and all of this, all, everything that we've talked about so far, the taking up permanent residence inside, the sealing, and, and the next piece as well, it all happens immediately. It's a, an event that happens right when we trust in Jesus and we first become a believer. Uh, and so the other thing that he does immediately is he connects believers to the body of Christ. This is the language of baptism, which I mentioned yesterday, 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For in one spirit, or by one spirit, could be translated, we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. So Paul uses two metaphors there. At the front end, he uses the metaphor of baptism, of dunking us into 
And so if you think about baptism as like what John did, where he takes a person and dunks them in the Jordan River, the Jordan River here is the body of Christ, the global, collective, universal church. And so when, when a person trusts in Jesus for the first time, one of the things that the Spirit does is he takes that person's identity and he plunges it into the body of Christ. He connects it so that it's a, a, an organic member of the body. It's now a finger or a toe or an ear or what have you. And the Spirit does that. The Spirit is the one who does that, plunges us into and connects us to, unites us to Jesus when we trust in him. And the second metaphor he uses at the end is that we drink of one spirit. We all share, everybody who's a believer in Jesus shares in a single cup. And that cup is filled with the spirit, and so we drink it. That's the imagery that Paul uses there. And everybody drinks it. If you're, not a, if you're a believer in Jesus, you have drunk the spirit. <laughs> he has become like water to you that you receive in yourself by drinking. That's the metaphor that's used there. So we move on from there and we say, okay, what about the ongoing Christian life? And that's where we start to see the Spirit's work in an ongoing way. And we can stay in 1 Corinthians uh, initially here, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. So the Spirit is the one who helps believers understand God's Word, understand the Bible. To understand the Bible, you have to get beyond simply understanding grammar and syntax. You don't go outside of that, but when you read the grammar and syntax, when you read the words that have been breathed out by God and printed on these pages and translated into English for us, when you read those words, it still requires a miracle for you and I to understand what's actually being taught and to respond appropriately. And the one who accomplishes that miracle is the Spirit. He does it through our study, not apart from it usually, 1 Corinthians 2, verses 10 to 16. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. So even as the thoughts of God have been put into human language and printed on paper and translated... Uh, into other human languages, it still requires the Spirit to enable us to comprehend those, the meaning and significance of those words printed on pages. Verse 12, now we have not received, we, now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. That last phrase, to those who are spiritual, is simply a way of referring to believers in Jesus, to those who have been indwelt by the Spirit. That's what makes you spiritual in the way Paul uses the language, is that you have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. And so you have to have an interpreter and he's not talking about other human beings, but he's talking about the Spirit living in you. But the way that that works, note the collective nature of this. We impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit. Uh, and, and he's reflecting on the church, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, not to individuals, but to us collectively. And so the way that I see this working out practically is that the Spirit uses us together as a body, reading the Bible together, coming to God's words together, and seeking understanding together. And so we, we shouldn't expect that the Spirit is going to zap us with a particular, with the right understanding of Scripture as we read the Bible in our own, in the privacy of our own homes all by ourselves. The Spirit does grant clarity to us as we read, but He also does that as we read the Bible together. So that's, that's one of the reasons that God has given the church teachers. But not only that, he's called us all, in a certain sense, to teach each other. As we share the word of God with each other, God uses that. The Spirit of God uses you to bring clarity to my understanding. The Spirit of God, I hope, uses me to bring clarity to your understanding. That's why we talk about these things. That's why we want to read the Bible together in community. I don't believe that God ever intended for his people to 
hide off in their closets and read the Bible all by themselves. It's not about me and Jesus and my understanding of Scripture isolated from other people. We are to be together in this and to seek understanding together. Verse 14, 2 Corinthians, uh, 1 Corinthians 2, 14. The natural person does, and then the natural person is a person who doesn't have the Spirit living within them. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. And that spiritually there is, again, they are discerned with the help of the Holy Spirit. Um, the spiritual person, verse 15, judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. So again, the person who has the Spirit is in a position to discern truth. That the person without the Spirit is not in that same position. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. And so the Spirit lives in us to enable us to perceive the mind of Christ. But we do that again, that's collected. We have, not I have by myself, but we together have the mind of Christ. And so the Spirit enables believers to understand God's Word and to respond to it appropriately. Now, I want to comment briefly, and I need to, I need to be very brief here, on another passage that's brought into the discussion under this, under this particular uh, topic that the Spirit helps believers understand God's Word. John 16, 13, and 14. So this is a part of that final conversation Jesus has, has with his 11 disciples before he dies, before he's betrayed and handed over uh, and then crucified. And he talks a lot about the Spirit, and here's one of those occasions. And he's talking to his 11 disciples, and I think that's important to remember. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Now sometimes we can isolate that passage, those two verses, and pull them out of their context and apply them to us today in a certain way. And we can then say, well, we can count on the Spirit to guide us into all the truth. Now, if we just take that out of that context for just a minute and try to wrestle with that, what does that mean practically? Does it mean that a genuine believer who is follower of Jesus and has the Spirit living within them can, will never be deceived or will never come to a wrong understanding or will, will always have all the truth in every situation? It can't mean that, can it? Surely not. Even the Apostle Peter, who was privy to this conversation, got it wrong sometimes, not as he wrote scripture, and that's the key thought here. But remember, Paul had to correct Peter for his behavior that wasn't in step with the gospel. That's Galatians 2. Uh, he had to publicly rebuke Peter, the apostle Peter, uh, because he didn't respond appropriately to the gospel that he himself preached. And so he lived in a way that showed that he didn't understand an implication of the gospel, so he wasn't living out the truth. So did the Spirit fail? Did Peter somehow block the Spirit's work? No. What, we, what I think we need to understand is that this promise is limited by context here to the 11 disciples and those who are uh, authorized by them to go forth and write Scripture. This is particularly about glorifying Jesus and testifying to Jesus. You see that in verse 14. He, the Spirit, when he guides you into all truth, he will glorify me, for he'll take what is mine and declare it to you. He'll declare to you the things that are to come so that you can write them down. So here, before the Spirit's come to the 11 disciples on the day of Pentecost, he's telling them ahead of time that the Spirit is the one who will enable them to communicate perfect truth. And I think he's talking about authoritative teaching and inspiration for the sake of writing scripture and teaching in the churches as an apostle with apostolic authority. So I don't think necessarily that verses 13 and 14 should be directly applied to all followers of Jesus everywhere. Or if it is, you have to list all of these caveats. But the way that I understand it, no caveats are required. It's a very limited context where the Spirit's going to guide them into all truth. It's when they are uh, teaching and writing 
the words that the Spirit inspires. And so he's setting up here, and this is our evidence from the New Testament, that we can trust the apostles as inerrant communicators of all of God's truth, that they don't mess it up in any way. And so this is a New Testament statement about the inspiration of the New Testament writers from Jesus' lips. That's how I understand that particular passage. But in any case, the, the promises of the Spirit's work to help us understand, to bring illumination and clarity to the Scriptures, is a work that is not promised to the individual. It is a promise to the body as a, a group. And so as we work together, we come to greater and greater clarity. And it's the Spirit who does that. It's not because someone's got persuasive arguments or because there's a... Um, just a perfect understanding of Greek or Hebrew. That's not what it's about. It's about the Spirit working through us together, using our experience and our skills for uh, those who've gone further and studied other things. We, we get help from them. The Spirit uses their skills, their insights, and helps us grow in our clarity and in our understanding of what He's given us in the Scriptures. Let's press on. So here's the biggest thing, the biggest category, and the most important work of the Holy Spirit is to empower believers, to empower us. He enables us. See, the fundamental problem with humanity, one of the fundamental problems with humanity since Genesis 3, is an inability problem. We are unable to please God. We read about that recently in Romans 8. Uh, and... Uh, it sets up for that statement about the Spirit being in us as the key indicator if we belong to Christ. If the Spirit is not in you, then you don't belong to Him. And, and so in Romans 8, we see that inability, an inability to obey God's law, inability to submit to God, and inability to please God. That's total for every human being on the face of the planet. Uh, and so when the Spirit comes to live within us, that inability is overcome. And so we have a new ability to submit to God's law. We have a new ability to please God in our actions. And so we see that again in Romans 8, 7, and 7 through 11. But this is also what the fruit of the Spirit is about. Galatians 5, uh, Galatians 5 22 and 23, right? The fruit of the Spirit. What, what does that mean? Well, it's a metaphor, right? It's the fruit that the Spirit produces. So that's what fruit of the Spirit means. The fruit that the Spirit produces produces in your life. And it's all of these character qualities. Uh, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control, and the others that I skipped uh, or left out. Um, those kinds of fruit are the kinds of things that the Spirit produces in the life of believers. That's what He produces. That's what you look for as you look at your own life and you look at each other's lives to see is the Spirit at work in your life? Is there evidence that the Spirit of God lives within you? What's that evidence look like? Well, it looks like Galatians 5, 22 and 23. The fruit that the Spirit produces is that in a person's life. And he produces it in different measures in different individuals. He produces it in different, um, even at, at different stages of life. Uh, sometimes we go through seasons where there doesn't seem to be a lot of fr fruit produced. But the Spirit produces fruit in its season according to His will and according to His empowering. This is the transformation of the believer that comes from the inside out now. 2 Corinthians 3.18 And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And so it's the Spirit's primary work in the life of the believer to enable us to obey, to transform us into an obedient people, an obedient individuals and obedient collective. Not only does, and this is a part of this, this is maybe a subset, but I think it's important to acknowledge that not only does he, uh, does the Spirit enable us to obey God and to please Him and honor Him with our lives and our actions, particularly he also enables, excuse me, enables us to worship acceptably. How do you worship God? We've talked about this at various times, and worship is a much bigger category than just what we do when we're gathered together. Uh, for the Christian, for the person who is indwelt by the Holy Spirit, for the person who is a temple, all of life is worship. And truly, all of human life is worship. God created us to be worshipers. We cannot be anything but worshipers, and we cannot do anything but worship. 
So truly, we are worshiping all the time. The question is, who are you worshiping? And how are you worshiping? And the call in the scriptures is that we would worship by the Spirit of God. That's a phrase that comes from Philippians 3.3. Paul claims that all of us Christians, including the Gentile Christians he's writing to in Philippi, we are the circumcision, no longer applicable only to ethnic Jews. We are the circumcision. And what qualifies us is that? How do you know that, that we are the genuine circumcision rather than the false circumcision of ethnic Judaism? We worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. So the Spirit enables our worship. He empowers us to worship in a way that God accepts. God doesn't accept our worship just because it's genuine or heartfelt or sincere. We can sincerely worship God in a way that displeases Him and dishonors Him because we think that we can define the terms of worship. But the scriptures define the terms of worship. The scriptures teach us how God accepts worship, what, it, what kind of worship is acceptable to him. And he calls for the worship that lays down our whole lives, not just what you do with your voice on Sunday morning or what you do um, when you're gathered together with other believers, but what you do in the privacy of your home, what you do with your spouse, what you do with your children, all of that falls under the umbrella now of worship because you are a temple. You're always going to be a temple. You always are going to be a temple of the Holy Spirit. So everything that you do needs to be understood as temple worship. If you're the temple and God lives in you, then your life is to be given over to the act of worship in everything you do so that your words to other people and about other people need to be thought of as expressions of worship, whether worshiping of Jesus or worshiping of somebody else or worshiping of yourself. Your words are worship, acts of worship. We could say a lot more about that, but that's not where we're at. Genuine worship that God accepts is empowered by the Spirit. So you don't get credit, you don't get credit when you worship God in a way that pleases Him. You get, He gets credit when you worship God in a way that pleases Him. And so the, the goal would be to follow the guidance of the Spirit-inspired scriptures to worship God acceptably as a Christian and to understand what that even means. Another thing the Spirit does for us is He gives gifts to believers. Okay, And we won't talk a lot about this. It's a big topic all of its own, a separate topic. But He gives gifts. First uh, Corinthians chapter 12, verse 11 is a key verse, but First Corinthians 12... Chapter 12 through 14 is really all about this topic of the Spirit's gifts, the gifts that the Spirit empowers in believers. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. So whatever giftings there are, whatever ways that he wants to uh, utilize God's grace in your life to help other people, that's basically what a spiritual gift is, the application of God's grace in your life to help other people, and it comes in lots of different forms. The Spirit is the one who decides when, how, and to what degree each of us exercises that reality. But that's from the Spirit. And so he's the one who, he's the one who controls, we could say it like this, he's the one who controls the grace of God and spreads it among God's people and in each individual however he sees fit. He is sovereign in his distribution and empowering of our service to other believers. And that too is what the gifts are all about. Uh, another thing that he does is he strengthens and emboldens believers to speak God's word. Uh, we see this regularly in the book of Acts. If you were to track down, and, and this is a good study to do, uh, every time you see the, the phrase, and you have to do this in a literal Bible translation, so you can do this in the ESV, you can't do it as well in the NIV or the NLT, um, you can't even do it as well in the King James Version because even though it's pretty literal, they, King James translators are inconsistent in the way that they translate Greek words. That's another topic. But you could do it with the ESV. You could probably do it with, you could do it with the New American Standard as well. But if you see the phrase filled with the Spirit, someone was filled with the Spirit in the book of Acts every time. And you could even go back to the Gospel of Luke. Luke uses this phrase uniquely, filled with the Spirit. The immediate result of being filled with the Spirit is speaking. Speaking, and usually speaking boldly, communicating the gospel uh, in the face of opposition even. And so it's the Spirit 
who particularly emboldens and strengthens believers to speak God's word in challenging circumstances. You can see that all through the book of Acts. Uh, another thing that's very important, so two more, two more, and we'll be done. I'll try to move quickly. Uh, he gives an internal assurance of eternal life to believers. Uh, 1 John 4.13 says, By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his Spirit. So John is saying that the, the presence and work of the Spirit in a person's life provides evidence that we can look at objectively and say, that tells me that this person is abiding in Jesus and Jesus is abiding in him or her. Now, when we look at the First John collectively, the large purpose of First John you can see very clearly in First John 5.13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. The whole book is written for the purpose of, 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 of strengthening the assurance of believers in Jesus. And he does that along several different lines of evidence. But John writes circularly. He's very much a Jewish man writing in a Hebrew Eastern way of thinking and it's hard for us Westerners to track with him because we like a logical progression that goes from A to B to C to D and then draws a big fat conclusion. But he doesn't do that. He's got these major themes that he talks about and he circles around and talks about one of them and then he'll go talk about another one and then he'll circle back to the first one and then he'll go on to the third one and he'll circle back around to the first one and maybe the second one and so he just revisits in a very circular way but if you read the whole book you can classify there's basically five different streams of evidence that you can look for um, and and when you see those streams of evidence they all seem to fall under this category, the, the, the category of the work of the Spirit in a believer's life. The work of the Spirit produces love for the brothers. The work of the Spirit produces faith that trusts in Jesus and believes the truth about him in his humanity and in his divinity and in his sacrificial atoning death on the cross. Um, it, it, it's the Spirit who produces the righteousness that John speaks about. All of the pathways ultimately are driven by this reality that the Spirit is at work in your life. And so he gives you very practical, objective, external things that are visible to people to give as kind of planks for our assurance that we have eternal life. The other text that's important in this regard is Romans 8, uh, uh, 16. Romans 8, 16. Romans 8 has a lot to say about the Holy Spirit. This is the only verse that mentions another spirit, our human spirit, in conjunction. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Uh, and so, and it doesn't say the Spirit himself bear witnesses, bears witness to our spirit. Okay? It doesn't say that. And so, this is not a subjective reality that's being spoken of here. There is a subjective reality to our assurance. We should feel a certain reality, and we should recognize subjectively in our own experience that we know Jesus and that we really are a child of God. There is a subjective reality to that. I don't think this is talking about that. Paul is suggesting, very biblically, that there are two witnesses. So, the law, the Mosaic law, uh, gave uh, a requirement that in legal cases there had to be two or three witnesses to, us, to ascertain, ascertain the truth of a matter. And so Paul is drawing on two witnesses here to affirm that we are the children of God. Who are the witnesses? The testifiers, the one who are testifying. The Spirit of God himself testifies, and our spirit, together, we, test, we have the same testimony, and our testimony agrees. And so he's saying that... The Spirit provides evidence. So what is it? Think about a court case. What does a witness do? What's their function in a court case? They're supposed to provide testimony that, that supports or denies a particular charge, right? And so the charge here is, I charge you with being a child of God. <laughs> so how do, you, how do you know that's true? Well, God, Paul is here saying that you can call on two witnesses. The Spirit who testifies, 
and shows evidence that you are a child of God. So it goes back to everything that we've just been saying. This evidence, this testimony that the Spirit bears is probably to be understood as this uh, transformation that's happening in your life. When the Spirit lives in a person, there's visible external evidence that that's a reality. He's busy in your life. He produces stuff. He's a fruit producer. And so that's probably what's going on here. Now, his testimony is with our spirit, not to, but with. So our, our spirit, my human spirit, comes alongside the spirit's testimony and, set, and has a valid claim. I say I'm a child, a child of God. That's my testimony. I say I'm a child of God. And I can present evidence of that, and it ultimately goes back to the spirit's work in my life that I can see. And so the spirit can work the evidence out, but I and my spirit, my perspective, my person, my identity can evaluate my life, and if there is evidence there, I should be able to see some of it. That's the expectation here. And so it's not just left up to my claim. It's just not just the words that I say. Uh, I can claim to be a child of God, but if there's no evidence that I can actually point to, then that invalidates my claim, potentially. So there's this internal assurance. Ultimately, it comes from the Spirit of God, but it's not simply, it's not the subjective reality that, well, the Spirit told me in my mind that I'm a child of God. I don't think there's evidence for that kind of reality in the Scriptures. And that's not to say there's not a subjective feeling. I mean, we who have been Christians for a long time, we do feel something. There's a real relationship between me and God. I have a real relationship. He walks with me. I know him personally. I've met the risen Jesus. We have a relationship. That's subjective. But there's this obje objective evidence that I can point to that shows that he's actually done stuff in my life. He's actually changed me as a person in ways that I couldn't do for myself. The final thing we can look at, and there may be others, but these are the ones that I've summarized real quickly, and I think these are the most important ones we can talk about is that God, in, that the Spirit intercedes for believers. So right there in Romans 8, verses 26 and 27. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. These verses are so comforting. Uh, I'm gonna indulge. I'm gonna indulge a little bit and and go a little bit longer than I would have liked to, just to talk about these two verses. Uh, the significance of these verses is very, very, very important for our understanding of what's happening in your life when you're struggling. Okay, what's happening spiritually? What's going on when you're struggling? Well, the Bible speaks to that in a lot of different ways, but one of the things we can count on is that in our lives there are going to be times when our suffering is going to be of such a degree that we are going to be bewildered, confused, overwhelmed to, this, to the point of not knowing what to do. I've been there many times, whether it be the loss of a loved one, uh, conflict in a marriage, situations that drive you to the point of no hope. I mean, that's really where we are. If you go back to verse 25, Paul's been talking about hope for the last little bit. He's talking about ultimate hope, as he always does. He wants our hope to get beyond changes in our circumstances. Our hope must be an ultimate salvation, resurrection from the dead. If we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And so how does patience look when you're suffering and when you're struggling and when your hope is hanging on by a thread? Well, he tells us something that we would never know that we would never know. You can't find this out objectively or empirically. You can't do an experiment to discover if this is true. This is pure biblical revelation. There's no way to discover this other than that, that he told us. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. Well, we, we could see that. We could say, well, yeah, I can see how the Spirit strengthens us and gets us through it, but Paul's got a very specific occasion and situation in mind. We don't know what to pray for as we ought. There are going to be times when you face suffering, whether it be you have an illness, and you want God to heal you, but you don't know if that's God's will. That's what's in, at issue here. You don't know whether God's will is to heal you or not. There's no revelation you can go to that's, that will give you any kind of confidence on how God is going to answer your prayers. He does not grant us that. 
how the, how his plan is going to unfold other than what the scriptures say. He does not promise to give us anything beyond that. And so when we when we're in those situations where we just are bewildered and don't know what to do, we can rest in the truth that even when we don't know what to ask God to do, when we don't know what God's will is, the Spirit Himself living within us, going through the experience of pain that we're going through. Okay? You see, God doesn't let us suffer by ourselves. He actually is walking through the suffering with us. God goes through our suffering with us. He's not looking on from a distance saying, oh, I hope you can figure this out. He's not looking on from a distance saying, oh, that looks really bad. I wish there was something I could do. He is going through it with you. The spirit that lives inside of you is walking through the same things you're walking through, whether times of failure and sin or times of suffering and loss. He's going through it with you, and he's praying all along the way. The Spirit is speaking to the Father in heaven on your behalf, especially, and this is Paul's focus here, especially in those seasons or moments when you're so bewildered by your suffering that you have no idea what God wants to do and what God is going to do, and you, you can't even fathom how to ask God to act. You don't know what's needed. You don't know what's best. It's good and healthy and right to admit that when you're in the midst of those situations, to just say, God, I don't know what to do. I don't know what needs to be done. I don't know what's best. And in those moments, don't lose hope. The reality is you have someone inside of you, the Spirit of God who is praying for you. And the cool thing, <laughs> the most awesome thing, is that the end of verse 27, the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. The Spirit always asks the Father to do what He's already willing to do. The Spirit knows the plan of God. The Spirit knows the details of the meticulous, sovereign plan of God. He knows exactly what God is going to do in your life. You don't. And there's no promise anywhere in Scripture that He's going to show you that. Instead, he calls you to trust, to walk by faith, right? But what that means is that in your suffering, in your struggle, you can be certain that the outcomes that are so very far out of your control are coming to you according to the will of God. The Father always answers the Spirit. The Father always answers the Spirit. And the Father always answers your prayers too. But the Spirit always asks for things that God has already committed to do. You don't. I don't. Because we don't know what God is committed to do in the future other than what the Scriptures tell us. And so the beauty of this is that you have an advocate, right? Um, the Spirit is referred to as the parakletos, the paraclete, the advocate, the helper. And this is one of those places where he goes to bat for you. He's asking the Father to exercise his providence to bring the grace that you need at every given moment and you can be certain, you can count on it, you can trust that he's going to bring you exactly what you need at the right time, in the right measure. And his grace will be sufficient for you. And it's the Spirit who brings that about in your life. The Spirit prays for you. We could go to other places that show us that Jesus himself is also sitting at the right hand of the Father right now praying for you. So, you have two members of the Trinity praying to the third member of the Trinity on your behalf. Let that blow your mind and lead you to genuine heartfelt worship. That moves me to know that I am never alone in my suffering. And even when I don't know what in the world's going on, I have two advocates who are seeking my well-being and my ultimate good, whose prayers are with sovereign, omniscient clarity. And the Father acts 
to bring the provision that's needed, to bring the help and the grace that's needed in every given moment. You can count on that. So the work of the Spirit in our lives is amazing, and it's going on all the time. The Spirit doesn't take vacations. He doesn't take Sabbath days where he's no longer working. The fulfillment of the Sabbath has come in Jesus, and so he doesn't take a break. He's got unlimited power, and he's at work in your life and in mine. It's mind-blowing and mind-boggling, and it does go beyond our ability to grasp or to understand fully. But nevertheless, it's really helpful to know that. And to know that when I'm struggling, struggling with sin and failure, that the Spirit's not giving up on me. That God is not done with me yet. I'm still a work in progress. And He's going to accomplish what He purposed, right? Philippians 1 tells us that. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. He's going to get you to the finish line. And in the meantime, Philippians 2, 12, and 13 is true. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Why should I do that? Why should I work so hard if I've got these advocates on my side? Because it is God who is working in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So God started the process. God promises to bring it to completion. And guess what? God's at work all along the way to make sure that you stay on course. He's going to get us there to the finish line. And the Spirit's work is the prime, the Spirit is the primary worker in all of this. He's the one working from the inside out in our lives to bring all that is needed for us to keep growing and keep moving forward and to be obedient and bring pleasure to God and honor Him with our lives. It's the Spirit who does all of those things. Let's pray. Father, thanks for the Spirit. Thanks for the work that He does in our lives that is sometimes imperceptible. We pray that you give us faith in those seasons where we experience difficulty in seeing the work that he's doing. Help us to trust the word that you've spoken to us, that he is at work, that he is accomplishing his purposes in us. Help us, Father, to know without a shadow of a doubt that you will finish the good work that you've started. Glorification is going on for those who follow Jesus, and it will come to its final completion to the praise and honor of your Son. Let us be about the business of pursuing that in everything that we do, and help us to trust the work of the Spirit when our own strength is weak, when our own flesh is challenging. Help us to know with confidence, deep faith, that the Spirit of God is not done with us yet. And he won't leave us. He won't go take vacation. He doesn't need a bathroom break. He is powerful, unlimitedly powerful, to take care of us and to provide what we need. We pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.